0: Yesterday, I went to the Science March here in NYC. It wasn't premeditated. I did not intend to go. I had an appointment at that exact hour scheduled, and I thought, therefore, that I wouldn't go. My last attempt at science was a freshman biology class in college, if you don't count an audited astronomy course with Carl Sagan that I missed almost as often as he did, But 10:30 a.m. rolled around yesterday, and my appointment called to say she wasn't going to make it. And so I said, "Maybe that is a sign." Speaking of signs, I, I needed one, and I needed it in a hurry. Can't go to the, a march without a sign but my collection of Women's March posters didn't seem to fit, nor were the ones that we had made for those rallies down at Senator Schumer's office appropriate for the topic and time, nor my interfaith coexist equals co-resist signs I was so proud of. The Science March was to be theoretically apolitical and was also, inconveniently, about science. My gig is religion, and supposedly those two don't get along that well. Now, religion and science have a long history together, and not all of it is bad by any means. Most of the great universities were started by churches, as you know. Even this little congregation whose first pastor left to found Wesleyan University in Connecticut and whose 14th pastor helped our board of trustees, President Daniel Drew, start Drew University. He is also our 17th pastor, since evidently a decade in the wilds of New Jersey was more than he could take. Yes. (laughs) Sorry, those of you from Jersey. Throughout history. The Christian tradition has understood and understood well the attention that it needs to pay and the debt that it owes to reason. Hence the age-old question, what does Athens have to say to Jerusalem? I.e., what does the seed of knowledge have to teach the heart of faith? Our Wesleyan tradition insists that we read Scripture but always see scripture through the eyes of reason, just as we see reason through the eyes of our faith. Anyway, emboldened. I set about looking for an appropriate quotation on religion and science that might be turned into a decent poster on short notice. I didn't think Stephen Hawking and I were going to agree on the science and religion topic, so I skipped that and I Liked Tolstoy's comment that religion reveals the meaning of life and science applies this meaning to the course of circumstances, but I didn't really understand it. (laughs) I just liked how it sounded. Maybe it makes sense in Russian. I avoided Albert Einstein's famous, science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind, because it sounded a little antagonistic towards both topics. And I finally settled on the science fiction writer George Zabrowski's quotation, the antagonism between science and religion is real only to those who take a narrow view of both. I printed that out. I scribbled real Christians heart science on the bottom of the poster and I was good to go. There were great signs at the march, much better than mine, Keep calm and res- and test your hypothesis, said one. I heart evidence, said another. My favorite. What do we want? Verifiable results. When do we want it? After peer review. <laughs> and of course, make America critically evaluate evidence again. And in the midst of the swirling mass of people there on Central Park West, I thought of Thomas. Of course, we call Thomas Doubting Thomas, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus, of course, is very fond of giving people nicknames. Witness the guy we call St. Peter, even though his name was actually Simon. Maybe Jesus doesn't give Thomas a nickname because he already has one. Did you notice? Yeah. Thomas, who was called the Twin, you did notice. Twin Thomas, that's pretty catchy. But maybe Jesus doesn't call him Doubting Thomas because Jesus doesn't think of him that way. Jesus doesn't think of him as Doubting Thomas. Now what's the trouble with Thomas? Nothing really. He's just not around on Easter evening at that amazing moment when Jesus comes and appears to the rest of the disciples. He's out and about. Of course, it says that the rest of the disciples are not out and about because why? They're afraid, right? They're afraid for fear of the religious authorities. They're huddled in the house and the doors are locked. Now, that's a reasonable reaction for a group of people whose leader, whose rabbi has been executed for sedition and whose body is somehow missing. It's a reasonable reaction for a group of people who are now themselves probably looked upon with a great deal of suspicion. Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up that Easter night. I always wonder if part of what the disciples are afraid of is Jesus, (laughs) because maybe they really do believe he's back and they're afraid of what he's going to have to say to them about the last several days. Afraid of what he might be thinking about them and their lack of courage. Afraid of the truth that he knows about them. Afraid of how disappointed or discouraged or disheartened he might be with them. Afraid he might want a word with them. With few exceptions, they've been in hiding all weekend. They don't know what's going on. They're anxious about the future. They're concerned about the religious authorities, after all. And so they're holed up in the house. Except Thomas. Except Thomas. Thomas is out and about. He's not afraid, or if he is afraid, he doesn't let the fear and anxiety paralyze him and keep him locked away inside. In any case, when he comes back later to the rest of the group and hears what they have to say, he can't buy it. He doesn't buy it. He wants a little empirical evidence, and so would you. He wants some kind of tangible sign, some tangible evidence. He he does have doubts. He doubts what they have to say to him. At least he doubts his fellow disciples. He doubts what they say they've heard and seen. He doubts what they say they've been through. He's like us. He's willing to believe, but he could use a little more to go on. And he says, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand at his side, I will not believe. I can't believe. But a week later, he does believe. Because Jesus comes back. Jesus comes to him, and Jesus comes especially for him in the way he needs Jesus to come for him. And it doesn't bother Jesus, seemingly, that Thomas has those doubts. Jesus has a few doubts of his own, and he's had a few doubts of his own in those past last few weeks. God, take this cup away from me, he says at Gethsemane. Judas, are you really going to betray me, he says in the garden. And on the cross, my God, have you forsaken me? As my pastor once told me, once told my ninth grade doubting self at a point in my life when I was doubting everything, including and most especially myself, doubt is the tribute that faith pays to honesty. The tribute that faith pays to honesty. That got me through a few moments of ninth grade existential angst. But I've come to know more than that over the years. I've come to know that doubt is more than a necessary evil, a tribute to be paid. It's a necessary good. Because there's nothing scarier than a doubtless faith. There's nothing shallower than a doubtless faith. And the opposite of faith, after all, is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. A certainty that has no need for faith. For believing and trusting is never an end in itself. But as the gospel writer insists at the end of this page, which probably constituted the end of the book at some point, he says, we believe, we trust so that we may have life in his name. Life is the object, the end result, the goal, not faith. And seriously, there's nothing less faithful about Thomas than there is about the rest of these characters. He just hadn't had that experience of the risen Christ that allowed the others to know that resurrection is real. And he hadn't had that life-giving, life-saving, resuscitating infusion of the Spirit breathed into him to bring him back from the brink of despair and desperate doubt. He hadn't had that. But when Jesus comes to him, just to him, especially for him, to give him what he asks for, what he needs, to let him touch when he needs to touch, Thomas is suddenly and seriously filled with faith, and he says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. We sometimes say that the point of this 20th chapter, this pivotal chapter of the gospel according to John is that line, that final line of Jesus, this final playful dig at a doubting friend. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have come to believe. And that's a good line. But it's not the point of the chapter, I don't think. The point of John chapter 20 is that the empty tomb is not enough to base faith upon. Faith is not based on that emptiness, but on the fullness that comes to us in strange ways from time to time by an encounter with the risen Christ. The point of John 20 is that the risen Christ comes to us and comes to each of us in a different way, in different situations, in different circumstances to fit and fill our different needs. And that's okay. You may be coming to know the risen Christ in a really different way than the way I'm coming to know him. And that's okay. The point of John 20 is this. Christ comes. Christ comes. And if we somehow miss it on the first round or the second round or the third round or the 27th round, the risen Christ will find us in a different way, in a different moment, in a way that we can understand in a way that we can relate to. That's the promise of Jesus. And he has this word for us when he comes, a word that's spoken to our anxiety and our uncertainty and our fear and our frustration. The word is peace. Always a word of peace. Peace be with you. This welcoming, accepting, loving word of peace. Because nothing's going to make him love us less. No matter what we may think or not think. No matter what we may be able to believe at any one time or or not believe. Because the one who said you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free is never going to want you or me to be bound by ignorance. Because nothing is going to make him love us less. No matter what people say or say or or think about you, you are a child of God. No matter what some religious authorities might say or think, you are a child of God, a precious beloved child of God. No matter who may be threatened or made anxious by you or your presence, the presence that matters is the presence of the risen Christ in you. Without always seeing him, we love him. Without touching him, we're touched by him. And even in our own ignorance, and even in our own doubt, we follow on his path, the path of love, justice, and reconciliation. Because nothing is going to make that one love us any less, going to make that one want any less from us or for us. He knows us not at our disappointing worst, but always at our reaffirming best. He knows how great we can really be. So spread the word. Spread the love. Increase the amount of love and justice in this love-starved, justice-lacking world. Amen? Amen.